Sometimes when we gather together and look at different scripture passages, we do so with passages that need a lot of unpacking and a lot of, ex, uh, a lot of exegetical explanation. And sometimes when we get to passages, we got to do a lot of digging to understand what's really being shared with us, to really get at the deep truth that is being offered. And sometimes we have to do a whole bunch of exploratory investigation to get at the nuance and the profundity of God's holy word as it's being offered to us. As we gather together to look at that scripture passage we just heard a few moments ago, today is not one of those scripture passages that's going to require us to do this incredible amount of depth of understanding to try to get at what the scripture is sharing with us. In fact, the true challenge of the story of the Good Samaritan that we heard this morning, it's not so much related to our understanding as to our action. The challenge this morning is not so much intellectual in nature, but rather related to putting that grace into action and motion in our lives. And this is one of those instances where we can understand in our minds the stories all that we want, but unless we act, unless we take action, grace will not be offered. A few weeks ago, I was out in Portland with uh, the first classroom session that I got to be a part of with the Doctorate of Ministry, and I-, I was running it one morning, and I saw this sign, and I just had to stop and take a picture of it because it really caught my attention. I don't know if you can see this super well, but the green sign there says, waiting, question mark, will turn your engine off, idling pollutes. Catch that last phrase, idling pollutes. So what they were saying is out there in the traffic in the middle of the city, a lot of times you just get stuck in traffic. Please don't just sit there letting your car idle. Please shut it off so that it doesn't continue to pollute the air and the atmosphere that we are a part of. Don't just sit there idling because your idling is actually making the situation worse. I was caught by that because a lot of times we can think our inaction is just a neutral thing. When in reality, our inaction or our idling can continue to perpetuate or even make things worse when we don't take action or do something more significant. God calls us not to be an idling people lest pollution continue to increase in our world or sin or destructiveness or messiness continue to rise in our world. Today, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And if you have your Bibles with you, I do invite you to take them out with you in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and again, the 10th chapter, verses 25 to 37. I love how this story is shared, and we've heard our kids share it this morning, but I want to share it with you as well. I love the way one of my former professors shared it, and the story goes a little something like this. Did you hear the one about the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho who was mugged, beaten, stripped naked, and left to die like a dog in a ditch? Now, by chance, down the road comes a priest, a religious official, a man who makes his living off of God, and you know how the world often views those kind of folks. He spies the man bleeding, lying helpless in the ditch, and the priest, the holy religious priest, passes by on the other side. Then down comes the road, a religious but not overly showy kind of ordinary Methodist kind of person who catching a whiff of the now putrefying mess in the ditch and being religious and therefore quite cautious in nature as a sort of person also passes by on the other side of the road. Now imagine that you are the man in the ditch. You, at this point, you have lost a lot of blood. Time is running out. You are praying that someone, anyone, will come to your aid and rescue. And with your last ounce of energy, you look down the long, hot, dusty road, and you see coming towards you, you think, a nice-looking, spiritual, but not fanatical, probably traditional, values-laden person like you, right? No! 
you see coming towards you a good-for-nothing, racially impure, theologically uninformed Samaritan. Your next best hope at survival is found in a man you hate. And despite your weak protests, oh, it's only a flesh wound, it's only a flesh wound, (laughs) I'm okay. This lousy Samaritan rips up his sport coat that he had been wearing to work that day, lays your bleeding carcass on the vacuumed upholstery of his vehicle, takes you to the hospital, shells out all of his credit cards, and says to them, spare no expense for this person's salvation and recovery. Now, says Jesus, go and do likewise. What's not to understand? Because let's be honest, we do understand. We get it. We totally get it. Our lack of understanding, that's not the issue. Acting on it is our issue. It's one of the reasons that we suffer from spiritual obesity. We've talked about this before. We are a people who love to learn and get all the nuances and fill our minds. But then we don't like to act on what we learn very often. Often we would rather consume knowledge than practice it. And yet, says Jesus, don't just understand this. Go, do, offer grace, for it will be a reflection of your salvation or not. And sometimes it's easy in the midst of this story to forget the very first part of it. Remember how the story began with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a salvation question, a question about where my soul will be for eternity. And what's the response of Jesus? If you really love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you better love your neighbor in such a way as to offer grace and mercy to that neighbor, even if it means you have to go out of your way, even if it means you have to get your hands dirty and messy. You better do that if your soul is really right with God. So verse church, the question becomes, will we love our neighbor Will we go out of our way to share the love and the grace with our neighbors, the love of Jesus Christ, even if it means we have to get messy, even if it means we have to go out of our way? And maybe like the lawyer in the story, we wonder, in truth, who are our neighbors? Because honestly, the answer is not always obvious. We try really hard here at First Church to make a difference in our community. And so there's a number of organized programs almost that we try to go about to, to make a difference in the lives of the neighbors in our community. So we gather Wednesday nights for first night where we feed folks. We try to send food home with folks so that they have that. Whenever we gather each week, we have something called Helping Hand to people coming off the street and we help them as best we can. We offer Celebrate Recovery every week to folks where that can be a helpful resource in time of worship. We seek to impact our community through the Transform Mission Week. Over 500 projects have been done now, and those are good things. There's even great things. We try to lift those up, but each one of those is an example of an organized ministry towards our neighbors. It's a group effort kind of thing, but what I encounter a lot of times from folks is, but what can I do? Day in and day out, and the people I run into, what can I do for my neighbor? Who are my neighbors? How am I going to make a difference in the life of somebody that I see or know of? And that can be a more tricky question because the needs are endless. And we think, what am I going to do? Like, it just never ends. I can barely get by myself. Who's my neighbor that I can love in a way that's really going to make a difference? And so as we end our series today on grace doing a body good, here's how we want to end it. By answering the question of how we can get into our neighbor's mess and make a difference in their life so that we do not just sit there idling doing nothing, allowing the pollution to continue to grow. 
And what we want to be able to do and understand is we want to receive grace in a way that means we're going to understand we're just going to get messy with somebody else because grace almost always means that. Receiving grace almost always means we will be or have to be willing to get messy with someone else. It's one of the things I'm most struck by in this story with Jesus this morning. Did you hear the messiness? It is not a pretty story. It's ironic that our kids shared it with us this morning because it's not a kid-friendly story. In fact, I think this would be an R-rated story for extreme violence, lawlessness, criminal behavior, graphic content, and no doubt profanities if we'd have been there as all of this stuff was transpiring. A man is beaten within an inch of his life. He's lying left to die in a ditch. He's bleeding. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's been in a terrible car accident or been beaten up by a gang or shot. I've seen some of those things, especially as a chaplain. It is not pretty. Broken bones, eyes that are swollen shut, bruising, blood everywhere. It's messy. And even though we're a church, and I believe we desire to help people, we want to help people while at the same time avoiding the messiness. We prefer a more sanitized form of helping, the kind that happens on my time and on my schedule, where I don't have to really deal with the harsh realities of life and what's found in this world. We don't really want to deal with messiness that gets up close and personal. We want to help others, but not if it means I have to face what's broken and ugly in this world, lest it detract from me having a nice spiritual worship experience. And then Jesus comes to us this morning and he says, we'll see just how spiritual you are. Do you want to know if you're saved? Jesus says, we'll know and you'll look, if you'll you'll know if you're saved, you'll be able to tell if you're saved in part by what's in your heart, by how you reflect in this world what's in your heart. And one of the ways you can know that is how much messiness are you getting into in the lives of others? That'll give you a pretty good idea of your salvation, In the story of the Good Samaritan this morning, we see a clear message. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open to Luke chapter 10. Specifically, look at verses 33, 34, and 35. If we want to be a neighbor to those that we encounter who are victims of violence, there are three things, according to this scripture, we must be willing to do. And we can apply this to anyone dealing with issues of violence. Number one, we have to be willing to emotionally engage the situation. So if you look in verse 33, you see that the the Samaritan took pity on him. For many of us, our hearts are not even pricked for those who are struggling with violence or hurt or abuse in our world. First, we have to care. And so this good Samaritan, he took pity on him. His his heart was softened. Luke 10, 33. The second thing we have to do is not just have our hearts pricked and be an emotional response. There has to be a physical response. So secondly, there has to be a physical care for their needs. Physically, we care for those needs. We see that in Luke 10, 34. He bandaged his wounds. He actually did something. It's great to pray for people. We must pray for people. But he did more than that. He offered a physical response with the wounds being bandaged. And then third, verse 35, we extend the care to the point of completion. The man says, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. He didn't just put him in the hospital. He made sure he was going to be in the hospital until complete recovery had occurred, extending care to the point of completion. 
First Church, today we have this opportunity before us to enter into the messiness and the brokenness of our world on behalf of our neighbors who are living in utter messiness and brokenness themselves. We have the opportunity to enter into their messiness emotionally and physically and to the point of completion. Because today is a Sunday that we recognize as Freedom Sunday. And Freedom Sunday is a Sunday designated by an organization called International Justice Mission, or IJM. And as you might have guessed when involving the word or the language of freedom, it's designed to help those not experiencing freedom in our world to experience freedom, specifically those caught in the messiness of slavery in our world. Right now, IJM is the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world, and their vision is rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. To date, more than 32,000 individuals have been rescued from abusive oppression. Over 21 million have been protected from violence in our world. Over 1,200 convictions against slave owners, against rapists, and other criminals in our world have occurred thanks to the nearly 46,000 officials who've been trained through IJM since 2012. This is an organization that gets into the brokenness and the messiness of our world and the neighbors, our neighbors' lives and offers grace in wonderful, tangible, real ways. I think it is so great that we can end our series here this morning on grace doing a body good with this story of the Good Samaritan, which gives us a flesh and blood example of embodying grace. And then for us also to celebrate this Freedom Sunday, which also gives us a chance to embrace in a really wonderful way, through a flesh and blood kind of way, how we can extend grace to our neighbors in our world. I realize it is easy to think that slavery is over, that that's an antiquated notion, that we don't have to deal with it anymore. We like to think that since the Emancipation Proclamation in our country, that slavery ever so slowly has just been dwindling away, and it's not even an issue in our world anymore. But nothing could be farther from the truth. There are so many lives locked up in our world without any sense of hope for the future. Right now, literally as we gather together this day, in our world, there are over 45 million people who are held in some form of slavery today. To put that into perspective, 45 million is greater than the population of 158 countries in our world. It's also more slaves than were trafficked than during the whole 400 years of the transatlantic slave practice many years ago. And over 45 million people enslaved today is more than at any other time in the history of humanity, more than ever. So yes, it is quite real. And then this doesn't need much explanation, but one in four slaves is a child. What more do I need to say on that? Those kids who just presented the scripture to us this morning, in this world, one in four slaves is a child. There are credible and conservative estimates of global sex trafficking indicating there are between 4.2 million and 11.6 million people held in forced commercial sexual exploitation in our world. And human trafficking currently generates about $150 billion a year through commercial exploitation. In India, a child goes missing roughly every eight minutes, and there's only about half of those children that are ever found. And globally, four billion people live outside the protection of the law. Now, I realize those are really big numbers, and often when we hear those kind of big numbers, we can appreciate them, but we tend to become uh, almost numb to them and feeling over-intimidated. I mean, what can I possibly do in the face of such a wealth of information and so many lives being affected in a negative way? What can I possibly do? What difference can I possibly make? 
how can I ever embody grace in such a way that's going to make any tangible difference in anyone's life? If those are any kind of questions in our mind this morning, I want to introduce you to someone. I want to introduce you to Kumar. Imagine being just seven years old, orphaned and alone. The only family you have ever known has sold you off to a brick oven owner, a harsh man who yells at you or ignores you, someone who forces you to wake up before the sun every day and join dozens of adults twice your size for a day-long labor-intensive day of molding, hauling, stacking heavy bricks. You're confused. You're terrified. You don't even know you are a slave because you are a child and you've never known anything different than this kind of existence. That is Kumar's life. And it's a story that is shared by millions of children and families and people across India and other parts of the developing world. And the result of month after month after month of forced labor has left Kumar's tiny hands scarred and raw. It's ironic that we live in a culture where so many times our kids don't want to go to school or be burdened by the work of school because Kumar desperately would love to be in school, to make friends and to play and to feel safe and to simply be a boy. He said that he was literally afraid to think about his future, so he never did because he didn't know what it would hold. There was only work and the reality of the harsh fists of his owners to keep him moving when he slowed down too much. This is Kumar's life. Unfortunately, such slavery is pervasive across India and other parts of our world. It is messy. For women, the fear of rape every day by their owner's henchmen is real. Brutal violence is used to create a fear that keeps people from leaving. They are literally beaten, shocked with electrical wires, tied up in cow sheds, and treated as less than human. Often they're left for dead, just like the man left for dead in the story of the Good Samaritan. I told you this is messy. Now imagine how this might make you feel. Imagine how we respond to such sadness and brokenness in our world. But now imagine how it makes the heart of God feel. Actually, we don't have to imagine. God makes it quite clear how God's heart feels on this issue. If you back up a few chapters from where we are this morning, if you go to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 20, it's the very point at which Jesus is transitioning from his private life to his public life in public persona where people are going to start to hear him in his teaching and proclaiming the word of God. It's the crucial moment where Jesus is going to signal to the rest of the world what his ministry is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about. In fact, it almost reads like a movie clip. So if you are a movie lover, just picture this unfolding in your mind, picturing it playing out as a movie as I read this, verse 14 and on. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and he was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, and catch this, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. 
And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Church, this is remarkable. It's his first ever public proclamation. It's the first time that he has a chance to proclaim his good news and what that's going to be. And what does Jesus say? Release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free. This is what I'm about. This is what my kingdom is about. Why would Jesus make this his first public proclamation? to give people an idea of who he is. And the reason that he makes this his first public proclamation is because we know his heart is utterly devastated and broken by prisoners who have to suffer and prisoners who are held captive and people who are left for dead and people like Kumar. His heart is utterly shattered for the oppressed of our world. So yes, Jesus does come to set us free from our sin. He does come to bring good news to the poor in spirit held captive in sin. He does set us free from the oppression caused by sin, from shame and eating disorders and low self-esteem and all of those other things. But if we stop there with just the spiritual, we miss the heart of Jesus himself. We miss the good news that Jesus is not just rescuing people from spiritual bondage, but Jesus is also declaring the very, very good news that he is delivering us from physical physical bondages as well. And he wants to set people free, especially the oppressed, especially those left to die that nobody's caring about, left in a ditch to be gone forever. People like Kumar and every other slave in this world. So church, if we want to be a church that is alive and active and partnering with God and what God is up to in the world and being a part of the movement of God's kingdom, we have gone to great lengths in this place to identify what those elements are and to walk with God in them. In fact, we've even created a document that designs and describes who we are. Maybe you've seen it before. I'd invite you to the information center sometime, pick one up. But here's sort of a copy of what that version of that document looks like. There's a lot of things on there, but it's really designed to be pretty simple, which is to say, what did God do and look for in the church of the New Testament? And how do we live into that ourselves? And we use this document as a guiding compass for who we are. But if you look closely, you'll see in particular there are five characteristics found in God's healthy church in the book of Acts. And one of those five characteristics is social action. And I want us to hear this. One of the most effective ways that we can embody God's grace in our world as a church is through social action. And when we embody this grace, when we are willing to get messy, lives are changed, lives are saved, and lives are transformed. It's because of Christians and folks like those working with IJM who've embodied God's grace that lives like Kumar's are being saved and people like Kumar are no longer enslaved. In fact, with months of careful planning and coordination between Christians and the IJM folks and the local police, they brought forth documented legal evidence that allowed Kumar to be set free along with other slaves. A boy once terrified about his future suddenly had the chance to dwell and think about a new future. Since he has been set free, everything has changed for Kumar. He is thriving in his freedom. He's a deep thinker. He's a fantastic dancer. He's a college student. And now he's working with other IJM folks to let people be set free like he was set free, and he's now a Christian. He is now a Jesus follower and lover. See, for Kumar, the first link to the redemptive chain of salvation was his real 
physical freedom from captivity. And now that he experienced that physical freedom, he is now experiencing spiritual freedom in the grace and love of Jesus. Why? Because somebody was willing to get into his mess, to love him as one of their neighbors, and to embody grace in such a way that he has literally and in every way been set free. Church, we have an opportunity to partner and be this kind of neighbor in our world, to embody God's grace. And there's a variety of ways that we can do that. But let me give you just a couple today on this Freedom Sunday. Ways that we can embody God's grace for our neighbors. One, as an individual or a small group, contact IJM. Get in touch with them and ask them questions and say, how can we partner with you? Because they would love to partner with you. Two, talk with one of the members of our Roots of Justice group here at First Church, specifically Christine Johnson or others. They meet regularly because injustice in this world is heavy on their hearts and they want to offer God's love and grace and justice in response to that injustice. Pray for those who are enslaved and the urgent needs that they face. Advocate for key legislation that seeks to end slavery. And consider adopting even one. Changing the life of one does not eliminate slavery in the world as a whole. But for that one, their whole world is changed when they are set free. The reality is so much of the preacher's challenge is not in telling people what they should believe. That's not really the deal. It's in getting folks to do what their faith calls for. The measure of our faith is where our feet are willing to go, what our hearts are willing to do, where our money flows, what fills our time, and what we agonize over in this world. Ultimately, faith itself isn't really all that hard. It's the living of it that's hard. This has been a series about living into and embodying God's grace in our lives, not just to make our body better, not just to make the first church body better, but to make God's world and God's creation better. And it's not been about trying harder. It's been from moment one saying, Lord, the only way this will ever be able to happen is if you come in and supernaturally change our hearts only when it sinks into our hearts and realities and into our souls, only when we realize we, we were a slave to sin and that Jesus got into our mess and our ugliness and Jesus literally got messy with us and literally got dirty with us and literally got bloody for us by entering into our cheating and our lying and our gossiping and our stealing and our abuse and our pornography and our apathy and our adultery and our drugs and all the other mess, only when that sinks into our hearts and reality, only then will our hearts be supernaturally changed to go and offer that grace to the rest of the world. Jesus, in his grace, gets into our mess and we are then set free. And we are called to extend that same grace to our neighbors, no matter how messy it may be. It's a supernatural surgery that God does on our hearts. And then we begin to live and embody the grace God wants. And then we're willing to get in the messiness of our neighbors' lives. It's interesting, as you finish this story this morning with the Good Samaritan, you got this cautious lawyer asking Jesus for the secret to eternal life. And Jesus lays out this story and the three men who came by and he ends by saying to the lawyer, so which of the three men who encountered the beaten man, which one do you think was a neighbor to the one who cared for him or offered care to him? And of course, the lawyer says, well, the Samaritan, the only one who offered him grace and mercy and love. And do you remember what Jesus says to that lawyer? Now you go and do likewise. You 
First Church, go and do likewise. Embody my grace to your neighbors that their lives may be changed forever. Go and do likewise. Amen.